The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. Ideas have consequences, and obviously the actions that come from our ideas also carry with them consequences. And the Bible shows us this in many ways. One very practical way is just the way it uses the word therefore. Um, You can find that word about 1,039 times in the New American Standard. Therefore means what follows comes from somewhere. So, for example, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. Or, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Or, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, Matthew 6.34. Another way the Bible shows us that ideas have consequences is with verses like Romans 15.4. Paul writes and says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Friends, that's my prayer for for you as we study the Old Testament together this morning. That the ideas and the truth presented in Scripture would have the practical consequence of producing hope in us for today and for tomorrow. And that hope doesn't just come from the human stories or the human side of the stories, like we're going to be working through today in 2 Samuel, but it is the God behind the story that we want to see and be pointed to. So, for example, the idea of having a king in Old Testament Israel, like the nations, it produces the consequences of much death and betrayal and defeat and civil war within Israel. But through all that mess... David rises to the throne, kind of this messianic precursor to Jesus Christ. So God is sovereignly working through the failures and weaknesses of men, even to save us from our sin. And that gives us hope, I think, right now, today. And that hope is what we're hungry for. I hope you are as we open our Bibles. We're going to be studying kind of parts of three chapters of 2 Samuel this morning, beginning in chapter 2, verse 8, and going all the way through chapter 4. And so if, you're, if you just turn through those pages in your Bible, just kind of flip through there, you're going to see that's, that's quite a bit of text. Um, we're not going to read through every verse, but we're going to do this to try to keep a story, a narrative intact that really is the beginning of David's reign over Israel, which we're going to see next week, Lord willing. And, and so uh, there's this king named Ishbosheth who kind of bookmarks this story. You'll see it in chapter 2, verse 8. He becomes king. And then in chapter 4, he is murdered. He's assassinated. And that's going to be the bookmarks of our story and our, our time together. And really, it's the end of Saul's dynasty, Saul's story that we began in 1 Samuel, in the prelude to David's. And it's a study in contrast. And I pray that as we study it, you'll be encouraged toward a greater hope in God's unshakable kingdom. And so here's how we're going to go about it. I'm going to basically divide the sermon into two parts. In the first half, I'm just going to overview the story with you. Again, we're not going to read it all, but just trying to make sure that you and I understand the the characters and what's going on and the meaning. And then in the second half of the sermon, we're going to make some application around the ideas and the themes that the text holds out for us. And so if you look in your bulletin, those three points are actually points of application for the second half of the sermon. 
Maybe the main idea, the main point of what we're seeing in these chapters is in chapter 4, verse 9. That phrase on David's lips where he says, The Lord redeems out of every adversity. The Lord redeems out of every adversity. David clearly believes that and presents us with kind of that theme as actually a way to live life. To live life in a way that trusts God through every adversity. I mean, there's another way to live life, a way that's much more focused on your scheming and your control. And we see that in our text as well, hope more in ourselves. Both of those ways of living produce consequences. They produce two distinct lives. And we need to decide this morning which one we're going to live. Where will we find ourselves in the story? So, let's look in to this story together as we overview it. If you, if you remember... We left off with David being crowned king of Judah, chapter 2. After news had come to him of Saul's death, David, his first act of king was one of mercy to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, that they were loyal to Saul and they risked their lives to go rescue his body and from the Philistines and to bury him and Jonathan. There are hints everywhere around this that David is soon going to be king over Israel, but there's going to be a lot of time and blood and tears shed before that becomes a reality. So we pick up the story in chapter 2, verse 8, with another man being crowned king of Israel, Saul's son, Ishbosheth. So civil war is brewing in Israel, and we, we see that. There's trouble ahead. So I would just, maybe this would be a helpful thing for you to do. Maybe in the, the side of your notes, just jot down the main characters in this story. Some of them, their names are, are easier to pronounce than others, but just so you keep them in your mind. First of all, we know we have David. David, at this point in the story, is king of Judah. So number one, David, king of Judah. Number two, Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is Saul's son. He's now king of Israel. So number two, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, king of Israel. Number three is a guy named Abner. Abner is Israel's general. He is, you could just say, on Saul's side, at least at the beginning of the sermon he is. And then the fourth character, main character, is Joab. And Joab is Judah's general, and he's more on David's side. So you have those four characters that we're going to hit on, just so you kind of keep them straight in your mind. Um, you have David and Ishbosheth and Abner and Joab. I don't know if you like old westerns. I, I do. I like John Wayne movies. And the, the convenient thing about those movies is that you can usually tell who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. It's, it, usually it's by the color of their hat. Bad guys tend to wear black hats and white guys, white guys. Good guys. Oh, wow. Good guys tend to wear white hats. There we go. That's not the case in this story. Okay. Um, the characters are a lot harder to identify kind of where they land. And I think that's because of the complications of sin. And it's just much more like real life. Um, we all have these layers um, of complexity in us because of sin. And so we'll break the story down into these scenes where there's nine of them. We'll go fairly quickly. And, and you'll see in the first scene, Isbosheth is made king. Look there at verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Isbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Isbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Isbosheth is likely a nickname. Um, 
His real name is Ishbaal, which means something like man of the Lord. Uh, but since Baal or Baal is also a Canaanite deity, it was likely changed to Isbasheth, which means man of shame. You thought your nickname was bad. Okay? Perhaps that came later as they sort of took kind of his reign into consideration. But he is a very pitiful character in the story. Notice how passive he is. Even in becoming king, notice those verbs. He, Abner took him and made him king. He's, he's very passive in this, in this kind of coronation. And as we'll, as we'll see, Abner is actually the main force behind Saul's remaining claim to the throne, not Ishbosheth. Abner is really a warlord. He's a general. He's a politician. He's an intimidating, strong figure in this story. Uh, so Ishbosheth only reigns two years as king. And, we're, and we continue to read, but the house of Judah followed David. And since David is king over Judah, we, we hear seven years and six months, there is this time period where Israel is without a king. And they're likely led during that time period by Abner as he's kind of assessing his prospects. And even though it's common knowledge that David is God's anointed king, the fact that Abner, in fact, he had even heard, if you remember in 1 Samuel, that Saul himself say that he knew David was anointed by God as king. Abner still makes Ishbosheth king in chapter 2. But as we'll see, Abner's loyalties are pretty fluid. So that's scene one. The next scene takes us down to the reality of the civil war, and it's at the Battle of Gibeon. It begins in verse 12 and goes all the way down to verse 30 of chapter 2. And there's, this, there's basically this showdown that happens around the pool of Gideon. On one side of the pool, you have Abner and his men. On the other side of the pool is Joab and David's men. And they're seated kind of in this um, calm before the storm moment. And Abner suggests that they have some of the young men kind of rise up and compete um, with one another. And this is probably some kind of representative battle, um, sort of like David and Goliath, but, but perhaps this is more of like a sport, like jousting or wrestling. It's not really clear how it was intended. Um, but the goal is that the, the result of this little competition would de- define the, the winner, and there wouldn't have to be a major battle, but obviously the plan, if you've read this text, backfires. Look at verse 16. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in the opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkahazurim, which is at Gibeon. That just means field of sword edges. And so all these men somehow kill each other, and they all die, and this battle begins. And then there's this important scene as the battle unfolds. We begin to see that David's men are clearly winning, but Abner and his men are fleeing. And Joab's brother, Asahel, sets his sights on killing Abner. And Asahel is described as a fast runner. He's compared to a gazelle. Maybe some of you have been compared to that as you run. I don't know. But he's a fast guy, and he goes after Abner. Pick it up in verse 19. And Asahel pursued Abner... And as he went, he turned neither to the right nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn again from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then can I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. 
And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. So here we, we get a little bit of a taste of Abner and his, his strength. Um, he appears to also be trying to, to not engage with Asahel and being reluctant, and he only ends up killing him in self-defense in battle. But this is a very significant piece of the story. It comes up later. Uh, Joab and his men are, are still going after Abner to a hilltop, and they chase him up there, and, and the men gather around. They have the advantage, and Abner then speaks out um, to Joab. You see it in verse 26 of chapter 2, and this is what he says. Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? This resonates with Joab, and he calls off the men, and both parties walk away. But the casualties you see there in verse 31 are heavily weighted toward David's favor. Twenty of David's men have been killed, and 360 of Saul's men. That takes us to chapter 3, and, and, and the next scene, which is, which is kind of a summary statement. Verse 1, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So in this next scene, you get a glimpse of David's family, his house, which is kind of a picture of his strength in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 3. His many sons are listed, along with each wife that goes with each son, which, which you know, presents an obvious problem when you're thinking about royalty. Who's going to succeed David as king? You just see that name Absalom kind of listed there. If you know this story, how that's going to turn out later. But this is a glimpse into David's kind of strength that's then compared to Saul's house in its weakness. The next scene begins there in verse 6 and goes all the way to verse 21 as we see Abner kind of making himself strong in the house of, of Saul. And Isbosheth accuses him of taking for himself one of Saul's um, concubines, which is really an ancient sign that you're taking over or usurping the kingdom. So Isbosheth accuses him of that, and Abner's response, whether he's guilty of that or not, we don't really know, but he responds in anger, defending himself. Verse 8 of chapter 3. Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth, and he said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word, because he feared him. And so Abner changes sides right here. He defects over to David and makes a covenant with David. You continue to read, he promises to convince Israel to join David, and Abner actually does this. He convinces especially the house of Benjamin, which was Saul's house, Saul's tribe, to join David. And then he returns to David, and David holds a big feast, and that covenant is ratified, and all seems to be well. Notice the way the author describes how Abner leaves this feast with David in verse 21 of chapter 3. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord, the king. 
and they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. The author repeats that phrase, he went away in peace, three times in these next few verses, just to show that everything is good right now between David and Abner. And as you're a reader of the Bible, you should think, well, something is about to happen that's bad, that's not good, that, that's not peaceful, but we're meant to know that David is innocent. Well, in the next scene, which is the fifth scene, we see what happens. Joab returns from a raid, and he hears about Abner's visit. Remember, Abner has killed Joab's brother in battle. And Joab is furious and, and says that, that his main concern is actually David's own security in verses 24 and 25. We're not so sure about that as the reader. We hear different motivations later. Could it be that, that this general is worried about another general coming and taking his place? Clearly, without David's knowledge, Joab takes things into his own hands. Verse 26. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach, so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Abner killed Joab's brother in battle. Joab murders Abner here in cold blood to revenge his brother's death. So David's peace and loyalty from the northern tribes is about to go down the tubes as soon as they hear what has just happened, it seems. But David's response to this event shows us actually where his heart is. His, he distances himself immediately from, from Joab and his actions. He says that the blood guilt of what's happened is going to fall on Joab's head. And he promises a curse on the house of Joab and pronounces a curse and as a consequence for those actions. And then David mourns Abner and forces Joab and his men to mourn him as well. David weeps over Abner at his grave and laments with a poem there in verses 33 and 34. Very similar to what he did when Saul died. And he fasts as a sign of his mourning. So we have no reason here to question David's motives here. And his heart seems to come through for all to see and the people of Israel take notice. Verse 36. And all the people took notice of it and it pleased them, David's mourning. As everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. Just, just, just observe this pattern of a terrible situation being redeemed by God in, for, for David's good. That's a theme that you see throughout this passage. And that takes us into chapter 4. Chapter 4 breaks down to, to three scenes itself, and it begins, again, with a comparison of David's house. We saw that in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Now with Saul's remaining house. And we see Ishbosheth as he responds to the news of Abner's death in verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. And then we're introduced to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, in verse 4, look down there. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, she fell, he fell and became lame. 
and his name was Mephibosheth. So here we're reminded and we're getting a picture that Saul's dynasty is actually has, is, is ending. His son is afraid and weak. And his grandson, Mephibosheth, who we'll come back to later in chapter 9, is unable to rule because of this injury that has crippled him. So again, the stage is continuing to be set for David's crowning as king. But the next scene makes it even go quicker as Ishbosheth is assassinated by his own men. And as you read this account, you'll see that the, the author is, is showing it to be a cowardly act. Essentially, he's, he's killed while he's taking a nap. And, and, he, and, and they, the author just makes that really clear that we're to see um, kind of this underhanded way in which it's, this murder takes place. So look down at verse 5. Now the sons of Reman and Berethite, Rechab and Bana set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechah and Banah, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in the bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who has sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. Those of us who have been reading and studying 2 Samuel know that David doesn't respond well often to people who take things into their own hands by killing others, even if they try to give God credit for it instead of trusting in God to work things out in his providence. And so this, this murder leads to Judgment. In the final scene of these verses, we see David execute judgment, beginning in verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Remon and Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ispasheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Friends, clearly not all Bible stories are bedtime stories. Uh, this is a violent, turbulent, bloody story that seems like an account, something out of it, like a soap opera or adventure movie. And yet through all this mess, God is bringing about his redemptive purposes. And he's bringing forth a king. So given David's stance in chapter 4, verse 9, and the main point of what we're trying to see here of trusting God How can we try to take this story and apply it to our lives? Now, I want to try to point you, if you want to open your bulletin, if you want to take notes to those contrasts in our remaining time together, really three different ways to live based on what we've heard that I pray will help us apply what we've seen so far. So number one, I want us to ask ourselves if we will be those that live in rebellion 
or in submission to God. Of course, you see rebellion on every page of our passage, right? Abner knows full well that David is God's chosen king. Still notice that word, but, in verse, chapter 2, verse 8. David was just anointed king, but Abner made Ishbosheth king. It's an act of rebellion against David, but fundamentally against God. And it seems that Abner is most loyal to whatever benefits Abner at the time. So it'll just be a matter of time before he rebels against Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth doesn't resist Abner when he takes him and makes him king, but passively takes the throne. I wonder if you've ever thought that rebellion can actually be active and sometimes passive. Sometimes we're rebelling by what we're not doing. By neglecting God's command, by not listening to God's word, by not obeying what we've been called to do. And then think about Joab as he rebels against David's authority by detaining and killing Abner for his own personal reasons. And then the men, of course, who kill Isbosheth, they rebel against their own king and murder him. So this entire story is one of rebellion. And friends, I just want to just observe that is the story of humanity. The Bible teaches us that rebels are those that turn away from God's commands and turn away from God's purposes. Often the people of Israel are referred to as rebels by Moses. And that, that season of the wilderness wanderings is sometimes just referenced as the rebellion. Rebellion implies authority. So each of our characters in this text have an authority that they turn away from. Just like each of us has an authority in our life. And all of this points to the ultimate authority. Friends, that we've all rebelled against. God's authority is rooted in who he is. Creator of all things. And by virtue of his eternal nature and power, he is over us in authority. He made us, not to boss us around, but that we would reflect his glory. We would reflect his image. And and sin has distorted that reflection. So even young children will naturally disobey their parents. They do not have to be trained and taught to not do what we tell them to do. Adults can naturally, will naturally buck against authority and think, you know, actually, I have a better idea. I have a better way. Our sin bends us to be our own God. And it makes us think about something else. It's just very in your face in this passage, and it's death. Death comes as a result of sin. It's sin's calling card. All the bloodshed and murder and literal backstabbing and frontstabbing are consequences of sin. Friends, the Bible is not condoning violence or recommending this as a good way to, you know, break out and, and exalt God. God is at work here in a special way in ethnic Israel in a particular way related to particular promises that involve a kingdom that actually has geographical boundaries, Israel, and borders, and is occupied by opposition. But this is all meant to point us to the reality that we often miss when we look at violence in the Bible. It's the reality of God's utter holiness. Because of our sin against this holy God, we all deserve his judgment. And how often is that our starting place when we look at the Bible and we think about our own life? God is eternal and the judgment that is attached to him is likewise eternal. 
The Bible speaks of something worse than physical death, an eternal death in hell. All rebels against the one true God and his king, Jesus, will be put down. A day is coming where it won't be a, a small battle, a few pages. Zechariah the prophet says it this way, Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. God's judgment is severe. God's judgment is right. And salvation only comes to us through Jesus, who came not as a military conqueror, but as a servant to love and save sinners. So all the bloodshed and the violence that you see in the Old Testament and our story, it culminates on a hill outside of Jerusalem where Jesus is crucified. God pours out his wrath for a people on Jesus. Jesus dies to save us from our sin. And three days later, he rose from the grave. And now he welcomes rebels to come to submit to his kingdom because he has paid our debt and forgiven us all of our sin. Friend, will you come to Christ today? Would you lay down your rebellion and come to the king? Would you repent of your sin and trust Christ? If you're a Christian here this morning, remember the warning that the author of Hebrews gives to his Christian audience in Hebrews 3.15. He writes this, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? Who rebelled against God in the rebellion? Those that saw God's wondrous acts and were rescued out of Egypt. I think the point is, rebellion is not limited to the ignorant or the pagan or the uninformed. God's people have a history of rebelling against the very one who saved them. Beloved, is there a rebellious heart in you this morning? Where does that show itself? Maybe in secret. Maybe against an authority at work. Perhaps in just kind of a passive running through life without Jesus, without the Bible, without dependence upon God and prayer. Turn from your sin and run to the cross and find afresh today the grace that will bring you home. Will you live in rebellion or submission to Christ? Let's look at our next contrast. Number two, control or trust. Control or trust. Will we either seek to be in total control of our lives or trust God to control our lives? Listen, I'm not advocating that you have your head in the clouds or that you don't have, or that you don't have a godly ambition or that you let go and let God I'm talking about playing God. Think about the way Abner addresses David in chapter 3, verse 12. Look back at your Bible at chapter 3, verse 12. He's kind of negotiating here. Listen to the way that he, he, he says this. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. Who does the land belong? He, apparently it belongs to Abner. Apparently making a covenant with Abner is the way to get out of, of trouble. You think Abner has a bit of a God complex? Friends, this is God's land. We are not the power brokers of our lives. 
Think about Joab. How much did it enter into his mind that Abner coming over to David's side might, might um, put his job in jeopardy? I know this is a real practical problem and struggle for many of you even right now as you think about your own workplace of employment. So, so Joab needed to control the situation before he lost rank. You ever notice, I wonder that as you're talking about future plans or thinking about your financial situation or trying to work through a struggle at work, you tend to leave God out or to just seize control yourself. Saul functioned this way. This is the way he lived life. If you remember, he promised David, one of his own daughters, Michal, only if David would kill X amount number of Philistines. David did that and more, but Saul ended up taking Michal away from David. She loved David. David loved her. He took her away, his own daughter. He used as a political pawn, trying to control his own situation and hurt David as much as he could. Friends, just notice the results of that kind of control in this passage. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. David asked for Michal back. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth and Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharum. Then Abner said to him, Go return. And he returned. Paltiel had nothing to do with this, and yet notice how he's affected by Saul's controlling sin. Think about your life. Think about the example that you're setting for others around you. Uh, Parents, think about the example that you're setting, the, the message that you're sending about trusting God to your children. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about do our children know that we really believe in God? We really trust God for our finances or when we get the news that a relative is dying or when tragedy comes, when God's word is violated in our home, when forgiveness needs to be extended? Or are we teaching with our actions a gospel of control and manipulation while speaking a gospel of grace with our lips? I think about about David's example here to his many sons, I mean, surely much of his motivation for these wives was political, for political reasons. Perhaps even with McCall. If he could have a child with McCall, that, wouldn't that unite the kingdoms? But the, 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 the scriptures are clear to point out to us that of all these other women that were very uh, fruitful, McCall was not. She never produced a son for David. Beloved, we know the difference between taking matters into our own hands, which really is a saying that implies that we somehow can do that away from God, but really it's just an expression of unbelief in God's goodness and timing. When we don't believe in God's goodness and timing, we try to take the situation into our own hands. We can either do that or we can entrust ourselves to the sovereign one. Again, David's words in chapter 4, verse 9, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. So, dear Christian brother or sister, if God can use the events of 2 Samuel 2-4 to to bring about his anointed king, what in your life and in my life is too complicated for him? 
David learned this lesson. He learned it well. Psalm 46.10, he writes, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. May we learn that lesson as well. Finally, the last question we need to ask ourselves as we think about this passage is, will we seek our own revenge or trust in God's justice? And the clearest example of heart-raging revenge is Joab. And listen, we don't need to make light of his pain. His brother was killed in battle. Every part of him wants to see the one who did this evil brought to justice. But his actions reflect a belief in an unjust God. That things are not going to be taken care of unless I intervene. And perhaps you struggle with God's justice. Either because you've seen someone in authority over you abuse it. Or because you've been hurt so deeply that you just don't think healing is possible. It's vital that we, we ultimately look to God for justice. Because no matter what, what institution we, we look to, what leader, person, authority, government, they will all be imperfect reflections of God's holy, just character. Even David here, he exemplifies justice, doesn't he, against Isbosheth's um, murderers. He executes them. But notice that he does nothing really to Joab for the murder of Abner. And you know, Joab is David's cousin. He's family. And David leaves Joab actually to Solomon to be dealt with. He passes on a problem to his son to deal with because he wouldn't deal with it himself. And I wonder what Abner's wife, for example, thinks about David and David's justice. Well, have you been harboring, harboring anger or a desire for vengeance, perhaps, in your heart? Have you been dealing with deep hurt and kind of with the medicine of retaliation? Maybe it comes in a much more sanitized form than what we read here. In fact, I know it does. (laughs) Much more sanitized form than what we read. But we can still behead someone and hand their head over to someone else in gossip. We can stab someone in the stomach with a look of hate or cut off their hands with anger, angry yelling or giving cold shoulders. And some of you have experienced the physical side of abuse. Some other versions. But in either case, our humanity cries out for justice. And friends, that cry is not sinful. It's right. And it's it's when we actually prescribe the justice ourselves, when we make ourselves the judge, is when we cross over into the territory that's reserved for God alone. Should we work for justice? Yes, absolutely. Should we take God's place? No. Just consider for a moment the justice of God. What does it mean for Paul to say that God is storing up wrath for some on the day of judgment, Romans 2, 5? It means that just because there's not an immediate action that we see that resolves the problem, God has seen it and is actually storing up specific wrath for the day of judgment, for evil. He will judge What does it mean that in the new heavens and the new earth, God will wipe away every tear and there will be no mourning, no crying, no pain? Revelation 21.4. It means all wrongs will be made right. 
Justice will be done and healing will come to God's children. What did it mean when Paul said in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There's not only does this knowledge bring us peace now, but it actually empowers a radical love even for our enemies. Because if the grace of God can cover our sins and our failures and our evil, it can also cover those who have hurt us. Jesus' death is that effective and comprehensive. We can not only rest in the truth that justice will be done, but we can pray that those that have hurt us would be saved and work to see God's justice reflected in our lives today. Remember that God only saves his enemies. And that's all of us. Now I hope you see there are two ways to live this short span of years that we call life. Let's conclude with one final contrast. I love the way the Bible uses symbols to kind of illustrate theology. Let's think about two different gardens, two pictures, two gardens. In one garden, you have a man and a woman who are given all that they need. They're walking with God in joy and perfect fellowship. But one enters the garden with an idea and puts it into the mind of the woman Should you really trust this God? Wouldn't you rather be the one in control? You can be just like him. He's actually not that good. He's afraid of you. And that's in that first garden, the original rebellion began, and the consequences were that death spread to all men. So fast forward to another garden. A man lies down, face down, in urgent prayer. His friends are asleep and a group of soldiers are on their way to arrest him and try to crucify him. And he's tempted to take the way of control, the way of the original rebel, but he refuses. He cries out to his father, is there another way? But heaven is silent. And so Jesus cries, not my will, but yours. And as he hung on the cross, Peter tells us when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus became the ultimate man of shame, to take away our shame. Unlike Joab, he, he did not seek vengeance, but took a punishment that was not his own, to die for his enemies. He, he submitted to the authority that was over him, unlike Abner. And like David, he trusted God to deliver him out of every adversity. And friends, three days later, he was delivered. He rose from the grave. So beloved, ideas have consequences. But Jesus' resurrection is more than an idea. It's a reality. And what will the consequences be for us? What kind of life will that produce? Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that it would produce lives that are fruitful with the Spirit and that glorify you. We pray that our lives would honor you and that you would give us peace that 
leads us, that keeps us from trying to sit in your throne. Lord, may we be those who are submitted to you. May we be those who trust you in your sovereignty and in your goodness to us. Lord, we need you and we thank you for your word. Lord, give us receptive hearts, not just to hear it, but to respond. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.